it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi everyone, Brian Kilmeade here. This is the latest edition, latest moments. Thanks so much. We're following everything. Uh, the election, the off-year election, which means a lot more than you would think, uh, as well as what's going on with the President of the United States uh, and a lot of drama with the court. It's a day off for, for the uh, for the Trump civil trial. But, man, yesterday was electric as the former president of the United States was told he didn't want to be heard from by the judge while he was on the stand. That's how political this all is. It is nuts. Uh, we have Senator Katie Britton studio, Colonel Allen West at the bottom of the hour. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's big three. Number three. There's just a lot of concern about the age issue. And uh, and that is something that I think he needs to uh, ponder. Just do a check and say, is this the right thing uh, to do? Time is fleeting here. Yeah, I'm sure he's checked his age, uh, David. You just don't want him to run, and I don't blame you. 2024, as Dems tear each other apart over support of Israel, Obama breaks from Biden and polls show Americans are leaning towards putting Trump back in the White House. As whispers of Joe must go get louder, we'll look at 2024. Number two. I hear over and over and over again that they love the fact we brought down the cost of living. We have stood up for parents. These are the keys to making sure that more people move to Virginia than move away. And we've seen that for the first time in the Commonwealth of Virginia in 10 years. Election Day in Virginia, the off-year weather, uh, uh, bellwether, predictive races that could tell a story and reveal a game plan for success in 2024. From Yunkin to Bashir to solidifying Long Island uh, as a red apple red, uh, the abortion battle and more. We're going to go state to state. Number one. We're fighting an enemy that is uh, particularly brutal. They're using their civilians as human shields. And while we're asking the Palestinian civilian population to leave the war zone, they're preventing them at gunpoint. Uh, He's not kidding. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, they are using civilians as human shields. Israel at war, a vision given for Gaza as the IDF splits Gaza City in half and reveals how Hamas is using mosques and Boy Scout camps in order to store and shoot off rockets. But we're not supposed to hit back. Israel isn't supposed to hit back. People have to sober up and wake up. Uh, Somebody that does not have to be sobered up to the dangers of living in Israel. She was just there, Senator Katie Britt. She's on Appropriations, Banking, Housing, Urban Affairs Committee and Senate Rules and Administration Committee, uh, an author of the new book, God Calls Us to Do Hard Things. Senator, welcome back. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here uh uh, be in front of you and our and your audience. I really appreciate baptism the by fire. I mean, between you, what's going on in Ukraine right now? You, uh, a lot of your party is not into funding Ukraine. I think that's a huge mistake. And then you find out about these attacks one month ago. You're there a week later. Mm-hmm. What did you see? Brian, what I saw was beyond comprehension because they showed us the videos that these terrorists, these barbaric individuals wore GoPro cameras on their head. So as I've come back and I've heard people say this didn't happen, you know, you look at what's happening on college campuses. In Washington, D.C., most of those people thought it was made up. Absolutely. I have seen it with my own eyes. You see them uh, rape women. You see them 
kill, murder children in front of their parents, burn parents alive in front of their children. I I saw them take a sledgehammer to a man's head on the concrete. Uh, This is beyond comprehension. You would hope that no human being would be capable of this. When we see those attacks on October 7th and what happened, America needs to realize Hamas has said we will continue this over and over and over again until the state of Israel and the Jewish people are eradicated. We must eradicate Hamas because they are evil. And the fact that in this nation right now, we cannot just call evil evil is a fundamental crack that we must go and fill and fill with the right so things. So the president, President Obama says on a podcast, if you want to solve the problem, then you have to take the whole truth. And then you have to admit that nobody's hands are clean, mm-hmm. that all of us are complicit to some degree. Mm-hmm. What is he talking about? I have no idea because there was a ceasefire on October 6th and Hamas has chosen um, to, to take out innocent civilians innocent people throughout Israel. Um, and it's disgusting and it's despicable. And there is no moral equivalency for, for what they've done. And so the fact that the former president would say this, this is just more of the same from him. You know, we are in this place for a number of reasons, but it goes back to his appeasement strategy, looking for to moderates Iran. to Iran. Uh, moderates in the Iranian regime. Brian, if you're on that errand, you're on a fool's errand. There are none. They have said death to Israel, death to to America. We have to take them at their word. The fact that Biden picked up his playbook and then tried to continue it, easing off of the sanctions instead of Trump's maximum pressure strategy. Then, uh, you know, you look at what the, the quote unquote hostage prisoner transfer, which I have a whole set of opinions about that. But this continual appeasement and weakness in, invites um, in, invites these unfortunate things. And this is despicable and we must stand up against it. We got six people back from Iran. I don't know what they were doing there, where they are. We just, we don't see the hostages. We got the 52 back in the 80s. Uh, we saw them. You know, they did interviews. Where are these six? And we know they got six billion unfrozen from South Korea. Uh, but we don't know where that is. And we hear it's frozen. It might not be frozen. Admit you had an epic fail Absolutely. right now. I mean, it's, imagine if George Bush after 9-11 said, excuse me, I'm the education president. That's going to be my focus. You'd go, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? We just got attacked. That's Uh, right. So just to show you what the propaganda war is like, and I don't understand how Israel Israel is using it, losing it. Musa Abu Marzouk is an executive with Hamas, one of the Hamas leaders who sits there in Qatar, Mm. does not get his hands dirty in Gaza, told the BBC that women, children, civilians were exempt from the Hamas attacks, that he knew nothing about it. And the group does not kill civilians. Could not be further you just, from the truth. You, and you're, you have a counter narrative. You saw proof. He's absolutely wrong. Absolutely. And then you even have Secretary Blinken, who testified in front of the Appropriations Committee, talking about what he saw in those videos and, and the eyewitness accounts that, that he encountered, where the, a family of four, Brian, was eating breakfast that morning. Hamas came in. They gouged the eyeballs out of, of the father. They cut the fingers off of the little boy, cut the foot off of the little girl, murdered them, murdered them all, moved them out of the way, and finished their breakfast this is the most despicable the first time I'm this. disgusting thing and you know what makes me at the hearing i said every media outlet needs to be covering exactly what secretary blinken just said but the truth is here on this station and and few others are you hearing these stories you are unfortunately hearing the propaganda of tiktok and others um that are that are telling a completely different narrative that is just false I just want you to hear this on the Sunday shows on, I believe it was Face the Nation, Hussam Zamlat is with the 
uh, Palestinian Authority, ambassador to the U.K. Now, they're desperately trying to find a Palestinian partner. I don't think you find it with the Palestinian Authority, sadly. Um, So listen to his uh, answer to will you condemn the October 7th remarks. You want to clear the air and clearly condemn the attack in Hamas today? No, I want to clear the record. First of all, the Palestinian Authority is not what represents the Palestinian people. It's the PLO. It's the Palestine Liberation Organization. Number two, uh, let me clarify another matter. It's the state of Palestine that will take over and protect its people in the West Bank, in Jerusalem and in Gaza once the Palestinian occupied territory is liberated. Number three, it is the opportunity for the U.S. to be the the peacemaker. So he'd said this, he was asked four times, and he refused to acknowledge or condemn the remarks. Now, we know Fatah, which is the armed wing of the Palestinian Authority, took, play, uh, took part. You know why? They posted their video, and they have distinct uh, headbands uh, and uniforms, and they were so proud. We're, we work with Hamas on this. So why are we even talking about two-state solution? I know, it, I know people don't want endless war, and I know Israel doesn't want the Gaza Strip. But saying a two-state solution is nuts. Brian, and I also you, you hear these calls for ceasefire and you hear the calls. Pause. Yes, you hear, you hear all of them. I, what I want to say to those individuals, to, to your point, is after 9-11, if we had known that the people who committed that were literally next door. So we're here in New York City today in Brooklyn, and we knew that they said they were going to keep doing it over and over and over again, killing innocent yeah. civilians. Would we tuck our kids in at night here and say, oh, we're going to be fine? No, we would not. We would find every one of them and hunt them down. And what people in this country need to realize is that Hamas is also the enemy of the Palestinian people. So we, after we eradicate Hamas, that has to be one. There can be no conversation of anything else until that is done. Then you have to find a true partner to help rebuild for the Palestinian people. Is this guy Abu Mazen, Abbas? He's got two names distinctly different. It's a bizarre tradition. He's got $35 million and a private jet. That's what he's doing with our money when these our, people starve to death. And you saw them you, right after the attacks. Um, there was there was someone that from Hamas that said, look, you know, kind of laughing in our face, saying this is what we do with the quote unquote aid that you send to Gaza. We have sent aid. We have sent pipes to have fresh water. President Biden reinsti- reinstituted it. And, and then they cut them up and, and they use them for rockets. They don't care about the people in Palestine. So what Senator Britt is referring to is. They put plumbing. We finance plumbing. Believe it or not, they don't have plumbing or sewers. And as soon as it was done, Hamas came in there and dug it up and used the tubes for rockets. Exactly. And that and that is the truth that needs to be told. But the the appeasement that the Biden administration um, has engaged in ha- has put us in a terrible situation in the Middle East. And by East. the way, by giving weapons to Israel and supporting them while behind the scenes asking them to pause is not enough for a third of the Democratic Party, maybe more, who are turning their anger towards President Biden. We feel he's not doing enough. We feel like he's not to, he's behind the scenes stuff. Uh, the the uh, ceasefire stuff is out of bounds. They, they say, how do you not demanding a ceasefire? Well, and, and think about this. If there were any polls, Brian, it needs to be to get the 240 innocent hostages out, babies, three-year-olds, grandmothers that survived the Holocaust that are now having to go through this. That would be what it's – that's not even what they're saying. It's crazy. It is absolutely insanity. So, so you want to know this, a little bit of the sparring session that takes place on other channels that you're referring to. 
Naftali Bennett, the former prime minister of Israel. And they got to get out and they got to go and tell the people the story. Uh, and this time he takes on Katie Turr. Listen, cut eight. Thousands Would you haven't try it again? had a vote in 17 years because Hamas took over and hasn't held an election. And although you gave the territory back to to Gazans, and yes, they voted for Hamas, and then Hamas, Hamas became radicalized, um, they weren't a state. It wasn't like you handed over statehood to, there was no two-state solution. We actually did. They, 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 it was theirs to decide. But we, it wasn't we, connected with the West Bank. It but, wasn't. That, but that's beside the point. We're talking about Gaza. The West Bank is the West Bank and Gaza is Gaza. They got everything they wanted. Would you try that again? Would you experiment again after what they did? I can tell you that Israelis left and right, there's consensus. No one wants to uh, try experiments, dangerous experiments again. So do you understand what you're saying? Well, you didn't give them the West Bank and make a mistake. Excuse me. You could have paved those streets with gold. Correct. You know how much aid would have flown in if it was just a quiet, happy place? Do you know that 18,000 Palestinians or whatever they call themselves were working in Israel every day? They got their passes to go in. So how bad is Israel if you're actually making a living there? Correct. And and there I am of the belief that people of all faiths can coexist in peace and prosperity, but good cannot coexist with evil. And these people are evil. They don't want peace. Hamas doesn't want peace. And so uh, people here have got to wake up and realize that and you have to stand shoulder to shoulder with Israel. We saw what happened, obviously, in the Holocaust. And we as a nation right. said never again. When we use those words, never again, they have to mean something. And so 80 years later, right. uh, it, it, we didn't say never again when it's convenient. We didn't say never again when we feel like it. We said never again. And the United States of America has to stand up and stand firm and be the beacon of hope across this world. That's and, what we're called to and, do. And a month later, there's more Palestinian protesters by the tens of thousands are at the Statue of Liberty than there are people in support of Israel, even though they were the victims of the October 7th attacks. It is nuts. Senator Katie Britt's got a brand new book out. Uh, God calls us to do hard things. She's in studio for one more segment. Don't move. It's Brian Kilmeade. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. There's just a lot of concern about the age issue. And uh, and that is something that I think he needs to uh, ponder. Just do a check and say, is this the right thing uh, to do? Time is fleeting here, and this is probably the last moment uh, for him to do that check. And it's, it's, it's probably good if he does. So David Oxerod urging President Biden to rethink running again. Katie Britt, what's the sense? Because you saw those polls on Sunday, Senator, and you saw that uh, Trump is winning in almost every battleground state. Mm -hmm. And you saw it on issues. He's over the top. Absolutely. So uh, people um, are committed to making sure that Biden is a one term president. Um, I clear that Donald Trump and his policies, people miss 
that stability. They miss the secure border. They miss peace abroad. I mean, there's a reason we didn't get in any new wars under President Trump. And you look at the economy. You know, he talks about Bidenomics. Look, at, look, people, it just common sense. They know the dollar doesn't go as far. They know when we go to the grocery store that they get less. They know when they go to the you know gas pump, they pay more. Uh, and so people are ready for us to not just be any energy independent, but energy dominant. They want priorities and uh, policies in place that allow us to achieve the American dream. And they see all of that every time they turn on their TV, every time uh, they go to pay for something, um, every time they they see a story, they know it's at risk. And so Trump is not only going to I mean, he'll dominate Biden. Uh, I think he could Uh, know that about him. He's got 91 charges in four indictments, which a lot of this stuff is totally trumped up, pun intended. Your book, God Calls Us to Do Hard Things. You talk about the way to take uh, uh, the way to take on some of the issues of today. Don't duck them, confront them. That's right. And, you know, hitting things head on. I mean, I think a lot of times we try to skirt that and teaching our kids to deal with things and um, and to be able to also talk about when you're wrong. So a lot of times we see people's peaks in life. We see them on resumes. We see them in spaces. We see them on Instagram. But it's truly your valleys um, that define you. And, you know, that's where you wrestle with it. That's where when you lean on God, when you figure out, you know, what, what you did to get there instead of blaming the world, that you actually climb out stronger and that we are all better. You know, I also think about hard work. We talk a lot about it in the book. We need to reinstill that value in Americans where you work hard to achieve, not where you keep your hand out and expect the government to give you more, more, more. The values of faith, um, you know, keeping our eyes on the Lord, no matter what you walk through, asking him to walk through it with you. So just the, the trials and tribulations of life. Making, not politics. This is about life. This, this is not about, about policy. No. This is about don't be afraid to fail. That's exactly right. Don't be afraid to fail. And also, when you have an opportunity to lead, don't just be a title holder. Actually be a change agent. And, you know, we talk about a number of things. How you treat people matters. Treating people with dignity and respect. Building relationships on that. Because the truth is, nowhere, nobody gets anywhere, at least not anywhere good, alone. And so building that back up um, and reminding our children what this nation was founded on and reminding them that it is true that life's going to knock you down. And what we've got to tell all Americans is we need you to stand back up. What did you learn by running for the seat and winning this seat? Gosh, well, I mean, that was a hard thing. That's actually the, the title of the book came from, as you well know, I had an opponent that was polling in the 60s, um, a sitting congressman. And, at, and then you have me who was polling at two. And this this audience knows enough about polling to know you put your name on the ballot and you get to four. So the fact that I could only get to two is really quite remarkable, but not in a way that inspires confidence. Um, but ultimately, when we prayed about it, my husband and I, my son set me down, then my daughter set me down and I said baby it's a really hard thing she said you got to do it mom I said what's really hard she said well mom doesn't God call you to do hard things he calls all of us to do it we've got to step up and get in the arena no matter what that arena how old is is that smart daughter right well she's now 14 she said it when she was 12 nice (laughs) very impressive you're doing a great job as a parent too Senator Katie Britt already making a difference uh, in the Senate The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Right now, there are two. There are two additional Democrats running for Pennsylvania. Excuse me, running for president right now. One, one is a congressman from Minnesota. The other one is the governor of California. They're both running for president, but only one had the guts to announce it. 
I give uh, Senator Fetterman respect for doing that. Uh, it, it's easy, um, you know, it's easy to duck when they ask you about the squad. He doesn't. And it's easy to pretend that Governor Newsom is not running for president. The guy goes to Israel. He goes over to China. He's making speeches, doing a debate with Ron DeSantis. And Fetterman just calls him out because he wants to hit whatever you think. I can't believe it. But he thinks that we're better off as a country with Biden winning. If that's what you believe, put, you know, do it. Go ahead. And he called out Gavin Newsom. And he says he's gutless. You don't run a shadow campaign because you help Trump. So listen, that's not my uh, that's not my candidate. I would vote for any third party candidate if uh, there was no Republican, there were any third party candidate over Joe Biden. He can't do the job on his best day. And this is his worst day. And it's only going to get worse. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West joins us now. Colonel, I want to get your take on that. Now, Fetterman's getting better from stroke. We're all happy about that. He's able to speak. And he and he came out and said that he called out the squad, too. So I give him respect for that. Yeah, you have to give him respect for that when you think about how Bernie Sanders, his uh, weak uh, comrade over there in the Senate, yeah, weak, and came out in support of Rashida Tlaib. And, uh, you know, we'll see how this censure By the way, Jewish. He is Jewish, and he, yes. he, goes, yes. he doesn't miss an opportunity to go against Israel. No, he doesn't. And that's. Uh, Quite disturbing and alarming for me, but you're right. I, I think that John Fetterman, you know, they say even a blind squirrel can find a nut uh, every now and then, and I think he's done that, and he has shown that he will stand up and say what needs to be said. And and I think you're seeing an incredible schism right now oh, in the Democrat amazing. Party, and and I don't know, I don't know if they're going to be able to survive this. You know why? They're not backing off. It wasn't a. Sometimes people take on their party and they go, "Yeah, I was misinterpreted. They they misquoted me or." Or I misspoke. Instead, they're doubling and tripling down. And basically, when you have a have a meltdown and call out the president and then have an additional meltdown and call him out again and then cut a 30 second spot calling out the president, your name is Rashida Tlaib and you're backed by Cory Bush and you're backed by Jayapal and you're back. AOC one quiet. She doesn't really know what to make of it because I don't know. Maybe because she's got Chuck Schumer breathing down her, her, her neck. I don't know what uh, what the Democratic dynamics are, but this is pretty amazing. But if you're coming after me and I'm president and you're in my party, I blast you. Trump would blast these guys on a regular basis if they start yeah. blasting him. And where's where's the pushback? Well, the pushback is that they're afraid. They they know that they have to have that progressive socialist left uh, support. Uh, and if you read some articles, they're already talking about how Joe Biden might lose Michigan, which is a key battleground state, because he's not appeasing the Arab Muslims uh, that are there in the Dearborn, Michigan area, which is where Rashida Tlaib, uh, that's who she represents. That's her constituency. But to call the president and align the president of the United States of America with a genocide, <laughs> when you know Israel is fighting against a terrorist organization whose intent is a genocide against the Jewish people. I mean, that's in their charter. But when you also look at, Brian, the things that are happening, think about these pro-Hamas protesters that attacked a United States military supply ship in the port in Oakland, California. You think about what happened this weekend outside the White House and the vandalism there and trying to scale the walls to get over into the grounds of of the White House. These are individuals that support an Islamic terrorist organization that killed Americans. Here is a member of Congress that is supporting and will not denounce an Islamic terrorist organization 
that killed Americans. And, and, and I, I don't understand what part of this where she thinks that she's justified and she's in the right. I, I get the freedom of speech. I get the freedom of expression. But when you're aligning yourself with a terrorist organization, uh, you're providing material support and comfort to the enemy. And that is what Hamas is. All right. You want to hear weakness? Listen to Admiral John Kirby. Well, you know, listen, I know you got to speak for the president, but this is the time to defend the president. But listen, cut nine. What she we're said, really though, was on, that the fo- administration was supporting genocide. Well, of course we're not doing that. And 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 what is happening in Gaza, uh, again, as terrible as all these civilian casualties are, and we know there's many, many thousands of them, we don't want there to be any. I don't want to minimize that at all. But you can't look at what is happening in Gaza and say that it fits the definition of genocide. And clearly, we don't agree with that uh, With that description. Uh, we think that is uh, an irresponsible way of describing this. Really irresponsible? Can you possibly say, listen, yeah. but my, the, you, I would say this. This is the president I work for. He's a good man, if you believe that. And I imagine that the Admiral believes that. And for somebody in his, for anybody to say that about him, let alone somebody in his own party, who is he's defended despite some of the radical things that she has said and stood for, I think is just inexcusable. And whatever happens to her in the House, like censure, she has coming to him. I'm not, I don't need to, do I need to tell them what to say? How to defend the guy they work for? Well, obviously you you do, and furthermore, when you listen to that exchange or you listen to what uh, John Kirby just said, you know, again, you're right, it's abject weakness. And why don't we talk about the fact that it is Hamas that is ex- are exposing civilians to this uh, this this terrible this attack, based upon what they did and the fact that they use humans as shields. And when the, the uh, people in Gaza try to evade or get away, uh, they end up killing them as well. So the people in Gaza are really the ones that are at the mercy of Hamas, and everyone should be rallying to the battle cry to destroy Hamas. Are you speeding, Colonel? Is that why they're pulling you over? Are you out in the road? Are you speeding? No, no, I'm parked. See, I'm parked, and I'm watching the fire trucks go by. Oh, okay. So, no, I, I... yeah, I, I'm good. I don't. I don't speed when I talk to Brian. All right, cool. I'm Thank you. I'm a law-abiding you. American. All right, so <laughs> you're getting some company. You got the mayor of Dallas. You got Congressman Byron Donald. Uh, we know about Senator Tim Scott of uh, presidential ambitions. What about uh, what about Daniel Cameron, the Kentucky Attorney General, neck and neck with the sitting governor Andy Bashir? Where would you rate his talent, uh, and what do you think his chances are today in Kentucky? Well, I got to tell you, I've talked to some people there. They think it might be a little bit tough for him, but, you know, I applaud him for stepping up and running for governor just the same as I did down here in Texas. I don't know if he has, you know, that full support of a lot of the uh, the GOP establishment uh, there in in Kentucky, but without a doubt, when you look at Brashear uh, and the policies that he's been supporting and how he went along with the, the whole Black Lives Matter movement and he has not done a good job and standing up against the crime that has been going on there on the streets. Louisville is definitely one of the, uh, another one of those dangerous cities that we have here in the United States of America. Um, I really pray that Daniel can can uh, get some headway and he can have a good showing today. Uh, I think that it will speak volumes. 
volumes about where we're going. And who would have thought two years ago that Winsome Sears would have won the lieutenant governor's position in uh, Virginia, and then a couple years before that, Mark Robinson would win the lieutenant governor's position there in North Carolina. And both of them are poised to be the respective governors uh, coming up in Virginia and North Carolina. So I think you're seeing an incredible leap forward in the black conservative movement. So the other thing would be uh, right now in the last poll, Trump had 8 percent the last time he ran for president. It's up to 22. And that's still ridiculously low. Shows bad messaging among the uh, Republicans. But it's just on pure performance. I wouldn't say they have a uh, an urban strategy. I, I would just think that the people looking around go, this is not helping. Here's a little from Daniel Cameron, the Kentucky Attorney General, Cut 18. This isn't a race about Republican versus Democrat or independent. Uh, This is a race in many ways about crazy versus normal. And we have got to restore common sense conservative values to our governor's office. So that's just a little pace of what he wants. You know, Bashir doesn't even know what Joe Biden's name is. He does. He's running from the president in that bright red state that Trump won by 26 points. Yeah. And 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 all of those things should give a a huge win into the sales for Mr. Cameron, but I will tell you that that 22 percent number is still very alarming for the Democrat Party because that's that hurts them. If they go down to 78 percent support from the black community, uh, that that's not good for their ship. And, and when you look at the inner city, it, that shows you all of the failures of what is happening. There was a recent report that came out, Baltimore County. The NAACP in Baltimore County is now lambasting the Democrats for not supporting school choice. Less than 5% of black kids there in Baltimore County are proficient in math. Less than 5%. But yet Randy Weingarten and all of these you know, white liberal progressives, they stand against school choice. They stand against these kids getting a, a good education. So I think those things, the crime issue, the lack of economic opportunities, which are things that Donald Trump promoted, uh, yeah. those are coming to, uh, to a head in these communities. Yeah, I was on with Adam Crowley yesterday, and he said the best line ever that gets better every day is when Trump came out and said, what do you have to lose? Instead of saying, well, yes. I, can be the, I can be the answer and I can be your Messiah and follow me, he just said, what do you have to lose? These people are letting you down yes. every day. Um, I, I tell you, today, Teddy and Booker T comes out. I know you were a big Booker T Washington uh, fan. I know you looked at his career and you kind of mirrored yourself from it. Um, I was just so motivated by what he overcame. He grew up in a segregated South like you. And he decided to make it better rather than be a, but an activist against it. He went in there, started a college, went to college in Virginia, started a college in Alabama. And by the thousands, he changed the perception of African-Americans just a generation from, uh, from slavery. And then working with Teddy Roosevelt, yeah. William Howard Taft, and Grover Cleveland. That, that's why I put the book together, to give people inspiration. And you're absolutely right. It's the choice of do you want to be a victim or do you want to be a victor? And when you think about his his three-point plan of education, entrepreneurship, and self-reliance, we need to restore that back again today. Uh, he didn't ask for reparations. He asked for an education. He wanted to give an education to others. And when you think about the great scientists, George Washington Carver, when you think about the Tuskegee Airmen, all of that is possible because of a man by the name of Booker T. Washington, to include the Negro Business League and the transformation of Harlem back uh, early on at the turn of the century. Yeah, the head, heart, and the hand. He said, listen, if you go to my school, you're going to learn a skill, you're going to learn a trade. 
uh, because there's yep. a lot of people that don't want to hire you yet. So you got to be invaluable. Don't complain. Take action. And then you go up there and you get financing for this school and you get people of power to understand what they bring to the table because that was the power of the vote, too. So uh, to see these two work together is why I want to put it together. I know a lot of people, and you must get this, don't think Booker T. Washington should resonate with the black community. Is that correct? Do you, do you find pushback on him? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's where the whole thing of Uncle Tom's sellout and all that got started. And people have to realize that the founders of the NAACP were white liberal progressives uh, at that time, four of them. And they put uh, W.E.B. Du Bois in charge, who was an avowed socialist and ended up being an avowed communist, because they wanted to counterbalance what Booker T. Washington was doing. So, uh, yeah, more people try to celebrate and remember W.E.B. Du Bois than Booker T. Washington, but the legacy of Booker T. Washington continues on today. All right. Uh, Colonel, I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. Uh, an exciting time. Uh, big election day today. And then you have, uh, yes, it looks like America's sobering up to what these last three years have been like and may be ready to turn the page. Fingers are crossed. Colonel, I thank you. So. Well, and thank you for you know, the platform that you have, making sure we understand. All right. I'm trying. Uh, thanks so much, Colonel Allen West, every week. Uh, listen, when we come back, uh, your calls one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Quick mention, Teddy and Booker T out today. Uh, two American icons blaze a path for uh, for racial equality. And also, it's a special on Fox Nation. You will get this book in 45, 50 minutes, no commercials. Eventually, it's going to air on the channel. But you'll understand. And I think this would be a great idea to understand where America came from. I'm not ducking segregation, Jim Crow and all that. I'm just talking about how we worked our way through it and how far we've come. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Democrats need to stop fretting, need to stop looking at this as a warning, and look at it as a wake-up call to organize, to mobilize, to register people, to talk about the accomplishments of this administration. If you want to beat Donald Trump, stop clutching your pearls and get to work. That is a, a Republican. Isn't that supposed to be the Republican, Eric and Pete? That's Anna Navarro. What an embarrassment she is. These are the people, they just hate Trump. But they know they have to go home and say everything is worse. And it's this guy's policies. There's sometimes your president is just unfortunate. And certain things happen, typhoons, tornadoes, series of hurricanes. I look at 9-11 as an attack that was brewing for years that they pulled off in the transition of power between Clinton and Bush. And we didn't hit hard after coal. Almost no action could have stopped it or anticipated it or, or game planned it out. But this is all him, his policy in Afghanistan, the way we left. The way we do in Ukraine, half-assed fighting it. What's going on with Israel? It's because we empowered Iran. Our guys are getting shot at 36 times. Do you know we have, I think, I think we have 47, excuse me, 27 guys have TBI from the explosions of these drones that thankfully were shot out of the sky, but the explosion has caused reverberations of our guys in Syria and Iraq. That means the men and women serving, about 3,500 strong, 45,000 overall in the region, 
but in those two countries in particular, have been unable to answer and protect themselves. These are all this administration. And still they say rally because what? Joe Biden took all our money, printed it, and has an infrastructure program where he lays for more Amtrak trains? That's what you want? Let's talk about 2024 if I can. Uh, We know Trump has got his issues, but it's not hurting him politically. We know he's got a secure lead. We also know there's a debate this week, and you got uh, five people on the stage. you got uh, Vivek, uh, Christie, uh, Tim Scott is just qualified. Uh, Pence is now out. So you got uh, DeSantis and Haley. So you got five people on the stage, a little bit less. It's by NBC. Uh, so, and I, I love that you, you, it's going to be on there on the three person panel. So they say so far encouraging, according to Ronna, uh, uh, um, Ronna McDaniel, who runs the RNC, she says, I, I talked to you, and so far they think it's going to be a pretty fair debate. Having said that, the best news that Governor DeSantis got lately was when the governor of Iowa. Broke a word and endorsed him. Cut 26. He is one of the most effective leaders that I have ever seen. This is a man who, when a hurricane struck his state, he cut through red tape and built a bridge in a matter of days. Now, listen, I'm a governor that's dealt with disasters. That is incredible. Not only can he be strategic and have a plan together, he knows how to execute it. And at a time when the world is spinning out of control, that is what we should be looking for in a president. And the governor got on the other side of Trump. Trump ripped her. I'm not that is not going to help Trump in Iowa. But so far, he's got a commanding lead. Uh, DeSantis is very effective. Don't let anyone kid you. I don't care about the warmth. I care about someone who executes. Haley's very strong too. Tim's got the nicest guy you'll meet. Uh, Vivek to me is not ready. Uh, and. And so far, so good for everybody else. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade here at the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks so much for being here. It's going to be a big hour. Dan Senor, Emily Austin will do a simulcast with Barney and Company. Also, it's the day of uh, my brand-new book, Teddy and Booker T, uh, Two American Icons, Blaze the Path to Racial Equality. Uh, you're going to love the way these guys work together, their individual stories, be inspirational, motivational. And you just go to briankillme.com and find out where to see me, especially, I guess, the first big show that Fox Nation's doing. Uh, if you go, you're going to get a book, and I think you're going to get uh, six free months of Fox Nation uh, with the QR code. Uh, but it's going to be in Red Bank, New Jersey. And I'll be in Pittsburgh, and I'm going to be in uh, Michigan. You're going to see these shows. But I talk about everything. So it's not just – and when these shows, just a chance to get on stage and talk about uh, how America got great. So I look forward to seeing everybody. Uh, and, of course, we're following everything to do with this war. The ele- it's an off-year election day, but there's still a lot of intrigue, and we're going to get to that. Let's get to the victory. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There's just a lot of concern about the age issue, and uh, and that is something that I think he needs to uh, ponder. Just do a check and say, is this the right thing uh, to do? This is so fascinating. See, David Axelrod, at this point, go full bore with his podcast, with his tweets, coming out against Joe Biden. Uh, and he is very respected on the left. 
and he is not considered anti-Biden either. Uh, he weighed in. 2024, Dems tear each other apart over support of Israel. Obama breaks from Biden by saying everybody's hands are dirty. And Americans leaning towards putting Trump back in the White House. Whispers of Joe must go are getting louder. Number two. I hear over and over and over again that they love the fact we've brought down the cost of living. We have stood up for parents. These are the keys to making sure that more people move to Virginia than move away. And we've seen that for the first time in the Commonwealth of Virginia in 10 years. There you go. That is a very pumped up Governor Glenn Youngkin. Election Day in Virginia. The off-year bellwether predictive races that could tell a story and reveal a game plan for success or failure in 2024. From Yunkin to Bashir to solidifying Long Island and making it a red apple red over a purple blue, plus the abortion battle. We're going to go over the stakes. Number one. We're fighting an enemy that is uh, particularly brutal. They're using their civilians as human shields. And while we're asking the Palestinian civilian population to leave the war zone, they're preventing them at gunpoint. That is uh, the prime minister speaking out for the first time on uh, American uh, television with ABC. Israel at war, a vision given for Gaza as the IDF splits Gaza City in half and reveals how Hamas is using mosques and Boy Scout campgrounds to shoot off rockets. That's the problem. You want to have civilian, you want to have as few civilian casualties as possible, but not easy when you put your headquarters underneath hospitals, uh, in Boy Scout camps and in mosques. Dan Sino joins us now, author of The Genius of Israel, out today. Uh, he's got a myriad of titles, but right now he wants to focus on his book to understand how he believes uh, this war is going to come out and how Israel will survive. Dan, obviously he didn't think this was going to happen leading to the launch of your book one month ago today. No, Brian, I remember you and I, we've talked a lot about Israel over the years, and, uh, and, and including as the lead-up to this book was coming out. We, we compared notes about books because we both have books coming out the same date. Uh, when we wrote this book, Israel was at the depth of division. country was tearing itself apart, or so it seemed, over this debate over judicial reforms. And there was these protests against the Netanyahu government, and there were protests on behalf of the Netanyahu government. And every Saturday night, hundreds of thousands of people were turning out in the streets. And we wrote a book, and, every, and people, many commentators in Israel and elsewhere were saying, this society is tearing itself apart. This society is as politically polarized as any country in the world. We're seeing political polarization all over the place. And Saul Singer and I, my co-author, and I said, no, 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 you're misunderstanding it. Yes, Israel is in the depth of division right now, but Israel has some societal shock absorbers that prevent it from tearing itself apart. The country comes together when it matters. The country has incredible resilience. But, Dan, weren't you seeing people not report for military duty? Yeah, so for the first time ever. Yeah, so in 2023, reservists not not the not the day to day standing army, but the reservists, some reservists were saying, if Netanyahu continues with his judicial reform, we're going to stop showing up for reserves. Now, that is in a sense the doomsday threat to a country like Israel that is so dependent on its military and its reservists. But what I think people misunderstood, and we we knew wouldn't be the case, that when push comes to shove, if the security of Israel, if the security of Israel was really at stake, you would instantly overnight see the Israeli people come out of the depths of division to the height of solidarity. It literally right. happened. So we explain in our book how the society comes together when it matters, and we are now seeing how the country comes together and when, when it matters. And when Prime Minister came out over the weekend and kind of blamed intelligence and defense. He had to quickly apologize, yeah, right? Because, it because was a bridge too far. Bridge too far, and I'll tell you why. 360,000 reserves called up. Okay, now this is important. We said and we argued in our book that no matter who people are, no matter what they think of the government, 
and whoever what they think of the politicians. They love their country. The institutions, the governing institutions yeah. in Israel are weak, but the society is strong, and people will turn out. So there was this whole protest movement, including people organizing the reserves to protest before, obviously, October 7th. This whole infrastructure that turned out hundreds of thousands of people in protests. We saw the images every Saturday night in Israel for nine or ten months. Within hours, that the organizing group of those protests got together and said, we're going to lock arms with the government. They called the Ministry of Defense right away and said, how can we help? We want to turn all this infrastructure and to help did. the government. And they did. And so the government, when they called up reserves, to your point, they overshot. They called out more reserves than they needed because they thought, what if we only get 80 percent turnout? They've gotten, depending on different parts of the country, 120 to 150 percent turnout. Everybody's uh, turning out. I saw about a thousand New Yorkers went yeah. to Israel and went because they were, I guess, reservists had served, and now they put on a uniform and they have nowhere to go because they're overstocked. They're overstocked for now, right? But sadly, that Northern Front seems more of a reality every day. Although it would be the worst thing Hezbollah ever did, and the worst thing Iran ever did, because in the end, there would the buildings would fall, and I know people sadly would lose their lives. But Iran would have these two terror organizations cut down, if not eliminated, because this can't forbid. If Hezbollah is able to survive this, yeah, uh, it's bad. But I want you to hear what Benjamin Netanyahu said to ABC yesterday when asked about what went wrong last month. Cut five. I've said that there are going to be very tough questions the, the, that are going to be asked, and I'm going to be uh, the, among the first to answer them. Uh, we're not going to invade that. The responsibility of a government is to protect the people, and clearly that responsibility wasn't met. But you know what I'm asking here, because so many Israeli officials, including the defense minister, the military intelligence chief, the military chief of staff, they've all taken uh, some responsibility for Israel being caught off guard. They didn't say we have to wait for an investigation here. Do you believe that you should take any responsibility? Of course. That's not a question. It's going to be resolved after the war. Uh, I think there'll be time to allocate that. So how does this play out? You've seen this war now yeah. for a month. We're on the gr- you're on the ground. You just split Gaza in half. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a million. You know, we're getting some people out, but they still have 244 hostages being detained. So how does this play out politically? You understand Israel as well as anyone. I think the war will be fought, and I think it's going to be a long war. And I don't think there will be a change in government during the war. It's too disruptive. It's too difficult to pull off. Right now you have a war cabinet representing people who are political adversaries, Benny Gantz, Gadi Eisenkot, with who, who are one political party, have joined the war cabinet with Netanyahu. Um, I, Israel has a long history of fierce, sometimes ruthless accountability of its politicians and its military leaders after wars. After the 1973 Yom Kippur War, Golda Meir, Commission of Inquiry, just ended her career. It ended Labor Party governance, actually. The, they did terribly politically for the next couple of decades. You know, they won that war, but they were caught by the surprise. The first two weeks were terrible. They were completely caught by surprise. There were major misjudgments on the intelligence front and misinterpretations of the intelligence. Yes, they turned the war around and was ultimately got to Cairo and Damascus. So they, they really turned things around. But um, the first two weeks were unacceptable. 2006, second Lebanon war. Ehud Omer, its prime minister, it ended – I mean, Israel ultimately won. He but formed the a new party, didn't he? Yeah, he, he and Sharon, uh, Ariel Sharon formed a new political party, Kadima, which is no longer exists. But but Omert, you know, even though the war was ultimately kind of successful, it was viewed as badly executed, and it ended Omert's career. I have a hard time believing Benjamin Netanyahu, a man I've known for a long time, a man I write a lot about in my book, in The Genius of Israel. Uh, I've known him for, you know, over 20 years, well over 20 years. Um there's many important things he's accomplished in his leadership roles in Israel, but I do not think 
this period and this war will serve him well in history, and I think he'll be subjected, as will other intelligence and military leaders, uh, he'll be subjected to a, a commission of inquiry. I want to go to more of the interview, but I will have to say, Dan Senor here, his book, uh, The Genius of Israel, is out today. I will say that what, one of the biggest mysteries to me is how long it took to save, to get into these towns and get to that wall and save these people. It took hours. Yeah. Have you figured that out, what happened? Uh, no, well, so this will also come out in the Commission of Inquiry. Uh, I'll say two things about that. One, there was a general sense that Hamas was more serious about governing Gaza than waging war against Israel, that that was the sense among the Israeli military and intelligence and political leadership, that Hamas really was trying to govern and that Israel could kind of coexist. It was a complete misjudgment. So they didn't have the resources and the infrastructure on high alert, it it seems, um, that morning on October 7th. That's the bad news, and I think it was a wake-up call and will never happen again. The good news is, again, our book is about resilience. It's about societal resilience. What you saw on October 7th is regular citizens, some of them retired army generals who are in their 60s and 70s years old, way out of – they start getting phone calls from their family. This guy, Mir Tibon. Okay, Mir Tibon is a, is a journalist for Haaretz. Right. He lives in a kibbutz that was under siege. He and his wife and his kids were locked in a room, maybe even like with a, kind of like a bomb shelter kind of room, locked in, hiding because Hamas was coming around trying to kill all these people and they were hiding. And he called his father. And he said, there are terrorists outside. He speaks some Arabic, and he could understand what they were saying, what the terrorists were saying, what Hamas was saying. His father got his gun and drove. His father's in his 70s and drove, and he's a, he was a former senior yeah, military. I know. I remember the story. And uh, he drove to the kibbutz, and along the way, he found other Israelis right. along the way who were, who were on the run, who were trying to get away from that. Where was the military? And he stopped, and he grabbed these people, and then he— so so the, this was a total failure. The military was not set up. Obviously, what it appears, the military was not on high alert in these areas because they didn't think Hamas was going to try and do this. I, again, I'm, this part I'm yeah. speculating about, but that's what it looks like. And, and after the war, I think we'll learn much more what happened. But the strength of Israeli society – so it, there's, there's two reactions. There's one reaction which you have, which is totally understandable, and it is you know, like – what the hell happened? Like, how on earth did this happen? Which I totally agree with, and I spent a lot of time thinking about it. On the other hand, you see the best of Israeli society when you hear stories like Amir Tibon's father. And by the way, it wasn't just Israeli Jews. It was Israeli Arabs and Bedouins who were risking their lives to save Bedouins who were being killed by Hamas, save Arabs who were being being killed by Hamas, and save Jews who were being uh, killed by Hamas. And so that's the only point we're trying to make in our book is that, yes, this was an awful situation, but you start to see the strength of this society and you ask yourself, you do, given how messed up our politics is here in the United States and given how polarized our politics is and given how divisive our society is, could our society rally like that? Well, the, in a crisis? Well, the one thing is I love the fact that in the West Bank they're handing out guns to everybody. Right. You know who doesn't? Right. President Biden. Right. President Biden, you don't stop handing out guns to people. Right. This guy still thinks we're, we're dealing with a gun issue right. as if it's America's school problems right. as opposed to these people got to protect themselves. Right. The whole country's in attack. Yeah. But I want you to hear a debate that, that you probably heard before every day with people that don't understand the complexity of the region. So you hear a lot of people on MSNBC come out uh, pretty quickly against, uh, against the attack in Gaza, uh, the, the counteroffensive. Here's Naftali Bennett, the prime minister, 
This is a different cut from what we watched this morning. Cut Former seven. prime minister. Former prime minister. Talk to Katie Turr. Cut seven. A lot of people have said after this, what needs to happen is a two-state solution. And there needs to be a form of government that's not Hamas in Gaza, but that's functional. Um, and that Gazans need to have their own nation. They need to have ports. They need to have everything that a, a nation enjoys on their land. You don't agree with that, though, do you? Well, we tried precisely that. I, I, I want to be very clear to the viewers now. In 2005, until 2005, Israel occupied Gaza. In 2005, we pulled out of Gaza, back to the 1967 borders. We handed the entire territory over to the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas. There was no blockade, nothing. They had the chance to form the Palestinian state that everyone's talking about. No one stopped them. They have beautiful beaches and beautiful weather. And they dedicated those 17 years to shooting rockets at us and to killing us. So why would, we, would you try it again? Is that just a logical argument? Do you even understand? See, when people just try to jump into this without understanding the 73 war, the Oslo agreements, all the attempts... That's what I find frustrating. They feel think they're experts. They haven't put the time in to understand that question. I so the the one that really made me crazy is President Obama over the weekend, who started to say, "Well, it's complex. Everyone is to blame. Everyone's hands are dirty. Everyone's hands are no one." Yeah, and he said something about the occupation. Israel needs to understand what the is occupation. Occupied? There's no occupation. Exactly. There what is no is occupied. occupied. So, so it, what, what, there's three reasons why that's problematic. Can I One, hold on to that yeah, thought? Because yeah. I, want, I don't want to uh, destroy yeah. the whole next segment. We come back. We're going to get to three reasons why Barack Obama was wrong and undercut Joe Biden. Don't move. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. What is also true is that the occupation and what's happening to Palestinians is is unbearable. And what is true is that there are people right now who are dying who have nothing to do with what Hamas did. And so if you want to solve the problem then you have to take in the whole truth. And you then have to admit nobody's hands are clean. Really? So he's going to say nobody's hands are clean, let's just uh, forget about all our past, forget about October 7th. What's most striking to me about this interview is that he says that Palestinian life is unbearable. That's part of taking in the whole truth. Why is Palestinian life unbearable? Where? In the Gaza Strip? Because Israel hasn't been, as you and I were talking about earlier, in the Gaza Strip since 2005. Who has been in the Gaza Strip for the last 15 years or so? Hamas. They've been running it. Who's been sending billions and billions of dollars to the Hamas-run Gaza? A bunch of Arab countries and European countries. So they've been funding Hamas. Hamas has been siphoning off most of the money, not getting to its citizens, using these people as human shields, impoverishing these people. Israel's not there. So so that's the whole truth. You want to talk about the whole truth? And it also suggests that Arabs or Arab Palestinians anywhere don't have agency, like they're just a bunch of victims. Israel's minister of defense just said, if you want a ceasefire, if you want this war to end, he said to the Palestinian people, 
then do this work. Take out the leader. There's, there's one architect who organized October 7th. He says, we're not stopping till we get them. If you want to get them, this ends. Take control. Take agency. In Israel, in Israel proper, there are a number of cities, we write about them in our book, that are Jewish-Arab intermixed. Arabs and Jews have stood up taking agency to secure each other, to defend each other. That's not happening in Gaza. And so Obama right. just misses like part of the p- puzzle here. And what is it like being of Jewish faith in New York? Emily Austin next. She's been speaking out about it. 22 years old, having to deal with it on college campuses and taking on the debate. Dan, congratulations on your book, The Genius of Israel. Thanks, Brian. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. When she says from the river to the sea, which the ADL says is anti-Semitic, she says it's aspirational, but the ADL says it is anti-Semitic. Do you want her to stop using terms like that? And others and others. But I want anything else. This is what you got. President Obama just said the other day, I think, quite correctly, and we all got to deal with it. This is an enormously complex issue. And slogans like the river to the sea... If, if that means the destruction of Israel, that's not going to work. People who are saying Israel, right or wrong, we're for you all the way. That's not going to work. This is a horrendously complex. OK, uh, Bernie Sanders, who's never saw anything that Israel did as successful or necessary, refuses to condemn the squad. This must outrage Emily Austin back with us, host of the of Hoop Chat. Uh, but also, I would say, an Israeli activist who spent some time working with the U.S. ambassador here uh, to the U.N. or was mm-hmm. it to the U.S.? Uh, the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations. Right. So, Emily, well, welcome back. Your thoughts about Bernie Sanders. You can't be surprised, but still. Yeah. So it's definitely not surprising at all. But forget Bernie Sanders for a minute. I don't think we're putting enough pressure on the government to censure the squad because this isn't the first time they've been vile. Before October 7th, they've been so strongly anti-Israel and even anti-Semitic. So this October 7th is merely an eye-opener of why they need to be out of Congress, because they are no example whatsoever. They need to serve as role models, and everything they do, the society should do the exact opposite. Everything they say, we shouldn't believe. It's like the worst example to have in the U.S. government. So I think they're, this administration is afraid of alienating the youth, some people in the base alienating the youth by getting rid of them no by by taking them on i don't know i just think it's very cowardly here's my argument if it was any other group of people besides the jewish people if they were racist if they were anti-asian if they were anti-latino they would be out in a heartbeat but because they're oppressing the jewish people somehow it's tolerated that's what infuriates me so here's what jared moskowitz said you'd like this cut 11 Some debates don't have two sides. From the river to the sea means the destruction of Israel and everyone who's in it. Okay, just like Mein Kampf is not a coloring book and the final solution means exactly what Hitler meant it to mean. From the river to the sea is calling for the destruction of an entire country. Period. Full stop. Uh, And so, look, the Congresswoman has a First Amendment right. She can say whatever she wants. But at the same time, Congress has the ability to express their displeasure with Mm -hmm. a fellow colleague of ours calling for the destruction of a country. So Congressman McCormick of Georgia is offering up another censure, and I think it's this week, on them to censure her. And she's doubling, tripling down. She cut a 30-second spot condemning Joe Biden, saying he's committing genocide. I mean, I'm, I'm watching this circular firing squad before I ask. I'm, I'm, in, I'm 
This is only a week after the Republicans were killing themselves over a speaker search. This is much more serious. I just want, I wish I could just see her face to face and show her UnitedNations.org Palestinian population growth chart so I can show her that the alleged genocide she keeps saying is going on in Gaza cannot be the farthest thing from the truth and that their population has exponentially increased since, when was the chart? 2006 or something. So it's like you're calling for, you're saying that you're falsely accusing a group of people of genocide, which is already spreading misinformation, which she should be held accountable for. Now you're saying from the river to the sea, which is calling for the genocide against the Jewish people and the Israeli people, and somehow that's tolerated. It's mind-boggling. 244 people are being held hostage. It's been one month. The families are fanning off through with different lawmakers and making appearances. I saw uh, a couple, two sisters come out on Long Island yesterday uh, just to talk about it. It's important for these families to say, guys, uh, stop focusing on Gaza. Remember how this started and what is still happening. I don't think there's enough outrage about the hostages. Unfortunately, as time passes, it seems like the emotions get a little more calm. But people are forgetting, like, God knows what they are doing to these women in Gaza. We saw what they did to the civilians in in the kibbutzim. Imagine what they're doing to their innocent hostages. They're probably being abused and raped and tortured. And it seems like the outrage has settled down. And our president definitely doesn't care. There are Americans there. There's a boy from Solomon Schechter High School in Gaza as we speak. And I don't see the outrage from our president. Where is that high school? Uh, Long Island. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't even know that. Uh, so, Omer. So, yeah. So we don't hear anything about that. Actually. Not anymore. No, it was everyone was upset for a week. And it's almost like this whole call for a ceasefire has now taken away the attention from the reason we are even in a war right now. Here's what Benjamin Netanyahu said about the possibility of a ceasefire cut to. I think there's a uh, the question of a, a ceasefire. The president himself has said that a ceasefire would be. A surrender to Hamas. It would be a victory for Hamas, and you would no more have it than you would have uh, a ceasefire after the uh, Al-Qaeda bombings of uh, the World Trade Center. So Absolutely. you like the analogy? I think it's true. Listen, stepping down, first of all, there have been 15 ceasefires in the last 20-something years. Hamas violated every single one. I'm not exaggerating. Every single ceasefire. And do you know when we had a ceasefire? Mm-hmm. October 6th. And they violated that again. So right now they got 476 trucks of humanitarian trucks full of supplies. Not many. No one can confirm whether Hamas is getting their hands on this or not. Uh, they ruled out a ceasefire in a pause, but this administration is putting tremendous pressure on them. They just were sent over $320 million. Uh, they transferred $320 million of precision bombs over to Israel. Uh, that went in place, uh, beginning to come in place today, and they're debating another $14 billion. But with that, I fear that they're going to say, now you start listening to me. When it comes to tactics, and I think mm-hmm. their tactics are terrible. Tactics for Afghanistan, the slow walking of weapons into Ukraine. And now we're seeing, hey, guys, can you calm down and have a humanitarian pause? For what? There's got to be some guarantee of some massive release of hostages for that to even be considered. I agree 100 percent. Whoever is even proposing it is a moron. And I also want to point out the fact that they don't need it. They have all the aid in the world. I even saw a photo of one of the hostages who was being abused next to a bag of humanitarian aid that was sent from Japan. They have it. The problem is Hamas is hijacking it from the civilians. So to every country that's going out of their way to send aid, they fail to realize, or maybe they know and they just don't care, Hamas is taking it. Their leader is worth $5 billion. They need aid. One of the few people that I think was not surprised by the 100,000 that showed up in Washington was you. And by the way, we're talking to Emily Austin. Uh, where where does that come from? Did you see it when you were over at Hofstra, right? Did you see any of that at Hofstra? Did you feel as though there was 
That's a, there's a lot of Jewish people at Hofstra. Yeah, you know, yes and no. Funnily enough, I always felt like I was the only Jew in the room, but I never minded that. Like, everyone has that mutual respect. What I did notice was they had an SJP group, Students Justice for Palestine. And that was a big group, and I was looking around. I'm like, where? Like, who's who's advocating for Palestine here? Who knows anything about the Palestinian conflict? You're were these Palestinians? No. I mean, they were American kids. Actually, funnily enough, a lot of them were like some of the woke people I make fun of. They were students justice for Palestine. Right. Which is crazy because that is not a tolerant group. No. What, what Americans fail to realize, and I will keep repeating this, is it starts with the Jews. America is next. Once they are done with Israel, which they will never be because Israel is not going anywhere, America is next on their agenda. And I think our open borders have been a disaster. I think the 100,000 are literally walking right across the border. They're like the silent cancer of terrorists that are breeding, and they're just going to attack one day, and we're not going to be prepared for it. Uh, I want you to hear what Carolyn Sales says. Uh, she, she's the author of If You Heard What I Heard, uh, or founder, I should say. Here's what she said about what she's noticing about these rallies, Cut 14. It's hate, and it comes down to education. You know, we have to educate about what happened not even 80 years ago in our history and keep that at the forefront of our minds for today so that it doesn't happen again. But look, here we are, and these anti-Semitic incidents are happening, and this hate is happening. You know, when was the last time you saw at a pro-Israel rally, you know, the call for the annihilation of any group? So, you know, having compassion for, for our fellow humans is really important right now, I think, now more than ever. I think compassion's off the table. I don't think these people have compassion anymore. I, I saw yesterday, did you see the old man at the rally who was hit with a megaphone Dead. and he was murdered? You don't see this from the Jewish side. They're not doing you don't it. see the pro-Israel rallies murdering Palestinians, but you see the Palestinians literally assaulting Jewish people on the street. And my problem is there are not enough consequences. If they were afraid to act like barbarians, they would not. And that's it's that simple. Right. Uh, what have, what have you get when you wear your Star of David? I listen, there's two options here. I take it off, which is essentially I'm surrendering and you're going to strip me of my Jewish identity or there's a yeah, maybe I'm a little more afraid, but you're not going to win. So for me, the alternative is not an option. Like you're not going to win. You're not going to let me go back to 1937 where I'm afraid to be a Jew. That's not happening anymore. Right. So what's your what's your family's reaction been that you've been so outspoken? (laughs) I mean, yesterday I took an Uber for the first time in weeks. My dad was flipping out. He's like, you're staying on the phone with me. You're putting in your Star of David. You're wearing a hoodie, sunglasses. Mm-hmm. I look like some A-list celebrity trying to hide, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think it's funny. I'm not I'm not too concerned, even though most people are. For I mean, they me. were rallying at the stat, the foot of the Statue of Liberty. Did you see the gentleman who – gentleman, the, the monster who vandalized – which statue was it? Was it – it wasn't George Washington – uh, it was a it was a vandalized statue of one of our founding fathers. I could not make it out because the flag was over his face. Yeah, th- that person should be literally like extradited immediately. Immediately. Right. What are you doing here? Right. I mean, what are you doing here if you're in Washington D.C. and you think you could vandalize also the White House? But my question is, where him. where are our lawmakers? Where where's the outrage when this happens? I promise you, if I did it, there'd be outrage. I know that's for sure. Absolutely not from me though, Emily. Always great to see you, Emily Austin. Thanks so much. You can follow her at Emily Austin, but you're on all social media yes. platforms, right? Yep. Taking on all comers. Yeah, taking on all the new fans. Join us in our journey to save America. Nice, you hit it. Now, the Brian Kilmeade Show joins Fox Business's Varney and Company with Stuart Varney, live on your radio and on Fox Business. Here's Brian Kilmeade. 
Yeah, uh, Stuart, I'm going to be joining Stuart shortly. Also, I think it's great that these uh, these hostage families are coming out, going to Congress, talking to congressmen and women, let them know that there's 244 people, including Americans, being held against their will, uh, underneath the ground more than likely, being try- maybe tried to s- smuggle them out. But just because it's been a month doesn't mean people forgot. I think it's so smart to do this. Right now, Corey Mills on the channel on Fox News Channel, uh, meeting with some of those families to tell their stories. You send a guy like that in, they'll get him out. I love the fact that we do have special operators down there looking in. Eastern seaboard of these here in the United States, and that means it's time for Brian Kilmeade, who will miraculously appear. There you go. Uh, Brian, we've been talking all morning about Biden's bad polling numbers. So listen to what the ladies of The View have to say about that. Roll tape. Democrats need to stop fretting, need to stop looking at this as a warning and look at it as a wake up call to organize, to mobilize, to register people, to talk about the accomplishments of this administration. If you want to be Donald Trump, stop clutching your pearls and get to work. Well, Brian, what do you say to that? Is, is she in denial, perhaps? How can you be in denial in a five alarm fire? True. I'll make it a six alarm fire if they have yeah. six alarms. Anna Navarro is supposed to be a Republican, by the way. Fascinating. The the problem with get to work is your candidate can't. Can't speak. That's right. Has terrible policies. Everything he's touched is blown up. And it's not like he had. There's unfortunate things like tornadoes, natural disasters, wars that have none none of your doing. If Canada, for example, was attacked, we'd have to defend them, and that would change everyone's agenda. But what has happened is all his doing. Even you could point to Israel. If we don't. Uh, blow up the Abraham Accords, make the Houthi rebels, get them off the terror watch list, start going up to uh, Iran and says, go sell some oil. We're going to stop the total pressure campaign. If we don't let them do that, they don't finance Hamas. If we actually show them that Ukraine will fight for themselves and got them weapons ahead of time, they would not have been invaded. If we didn't slow walk, there wouldn't be 550 days of an of a ongoing struggle. There wouldn't be a collapse of the border if he wasn't determined to reverse all of Donald Trump's policies. So he is responsible. And he does not have Barack Obama or Bill Clinton's ability to communicate. And I'll add something else to this. The only attack they have is what Barack Obama used his second term. They made Mitt Romney seem like the worst person on the planet, and he's not. And they're going to do that to Trump. That's what they're doing, an anti-MAGA rally. There's no MAGA is not a threat. MAGA is Republicans who want to make America great again. They're going to hit you with this. And what's worst is 60 Minutes is compliant. They did a January 6th story. The Washington yeah. Post, Donald Trump, too, will be nothing but revenge. Really? Where did that come from? It yeah. came from yeah. the Siena poll. And they're right. panicking, and they're all in against it. And it's thank true. goodness there's, at least there's Twitter. There's Twitter that will play it fair. Okay. Change the subject. Talk about your new book, because I know it's out today. Yeah. Teddy and Booker, how, Booker T., how two American icons blazed a path for racial equality. All right, Brian, tell me briefly how Booker T and Teddy improved our country. Well, number one, it's on Fox Nation an hour. I think it's the best special I was ever a part of. They've been shooting it for the last year. Uh, great producers. But I just wanted to take a, a, a guy that was born a slave until he was nine. And I want to bring you to the path and how he became one of the most important people of any generation and how he did it through education. And how a black man born a slave ends up winning over people like Teddy Roosevelt and made them partners to make America a better place. And before you take a knee before a football game or take a knee before a U.S. World Cup game, maybe you should think about those men and women who combined together to make America a better place in the Jim Crow South, 
I don't soft pedal it. I don't tell you that the well, poll taxes weren't real. I just told you how people overcame it by working together. And these are two unbelievable stories that nobody forecasted that they'd even be successful, let alone be such an impact player uh, for maybe all-time great Americans. I just wanted to bring that out. Well, I think one thing that should be brought out is that Booker T believed in a meritocracy, not in what we have today, the equity and you automatically do this, that and the other because of the color of your skin. He was a meritocrat, and that's a fine thing. Now, the book is out today. Is that yeah. correct, uh, Brian? Okay. It's, yeah, it's out today. I'm going to be in Red Bank, New Jersey on Thursday and talking about all the books in a patriotic, motivational, inspirational way. Uh, but this one, I think people need to know. We're not ducking yes. the race problem, but I want people to know the progress we made in the great people that pulled us that direction. And by yeah. winning people over by their actions, not by their activism, by educating and teaching a trade and teaching and combining that with education to tell everyone America, black, white, uh, Asian, it doesn't matter. Just go in and compete. And he helped yeah. level the playing compete, field for generations. Compete, compete. We got a constitution. That's right. Uh, Brian, good luck with the book. Great to see you. We'll see you again soon, I promise. Go get him, Stuart. Thank Still you. Go ahead. Jimmy Fallon. So, yeah, by the way, uh, Booker T, uh, Teddy and Booker T is now out. I don't know if we have a clip from the special, uh, Eric, if you have one of the clips. This give you an idea of how these two work together. And I went to Tuskegee, the place that Booker T founded, and Teddy Roosevelt uh, remember his apartment in the city to his house in, on Long Island. Here's a little of the special on Fox Nation. October 16th, 1901. This new president, Teddy Roosevelt, is just getting used to the reins of power after the assassination of William McKinley. So he's here at the White House, and he gets word that Booker T. Washington, his good friend, is in town. So he does what everyone would do, invites him over for dinner with his family. And they'd met until 11 o'clock at night. It seemed like the right thing to do. After all, what's the big deal? A white president and his family meeting with a black leader? Well, that's now. 120 years ago, they weren't ready to accept it. It's the first time in the history of the country that a black man was invited to dine with the President of the United States. We had some hesitation about doing it because Booker T's way of operating is under the radar. Upon hearing the President's invitation, Washington wrote this letter with the following reply. My dear Mr. President, I shall be very glad to accept your invitation for dinner this evening at 7.30. Yours very truly, Booker T. Washington. And then all hell broke loose and it ended up being a big scandal because America wasn't ready at that time, sadly, in certain sections for a, for a black man to have dinner with the white president. But they pushed everyone forward, made them reevaluate things. It was referencing John McCain's loss to Barack Obama. He said not only will the uh, black man be uh, at the White House, he'll be hosting the next dinner at the White House. And that, that's, by the way, how you lose. Senator John McCain, all class. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Go to briankilmeade.com. You can order it. See you soon. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. We come out uh, the final hour of today, but depending on when you listen, it might be a little bit uh, off depending on where you're uh, where you get the show. Uh, Jason Chavis is going to be on this hour. Also, Garrett Ventry is here, the founder and president of GRV Strategies. 
Uh, he's an advisor to Senator Chuck Grassley. It's all about Iowa. And I'm just fascinated with the Republican side, too. So much talent. Big debate this week. Trump dominating in the courts. Something we haven't seen before. The governor of Iowa endorsing somebody after they said they wouldn't. Uh, and again, um, in a tough spot. I, I see how great uh, Trump's policies were. I see how well uh, Governor Haley functioned at U.N. ambassador, too. And I think that Governor DeSantis is the best governor in America. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There's just a lot of concern about the age issue. And uh, and that is something that I think he needs to uh, ponder. Just do a check and say, is this the right thing uh, to do? Time is fleeting here. That is that is David Axelrod. That's a big deal. 2024 is Dems tear into each other and tear each other apart over Israel. Obama breaks from Biden and insults all of us. And Donald Trump, maybe he's looking at a second tour in the White House, if you believe the polls. And now Democrats must believe it because they want Joe to go. Number two. I hear over and over and over again that they love the fact we brought down the cost of living. We have stood up for parents. These are the keys to making sure that more people move to Virginia than move away. And we've seen that for the first time in the Commonwealth of Virginia in 10 years. And that is Governor Yunkin pumped up. If he flips the House and uh, the Assembly, uh, the House and the Senate, it's going to be no stopping him in 2028. That's what I believe. There's no scenario unless Trump for some reason drops out. Uh, that he gets in election day in Virginia, the year uh, the year is an off year election, no doubt about it. But a bellwether to what's going to be a successful strategy in 2024. We'll go over the key races. Number one, we're fighting an enemy that is uh, particularly brutal. They're using their civilians as human shields. And while we're asking the Palestinian civilian population to leave the war zone, they're preventing them at gunpoint. That is the prime minister uh, talking about ABC. Israel at war, a vision uh, vision given for Gaza as the IDF splits Gaza City in half and reveals how Hamas is using mosques and Boy Scout campgrounds to shoot off rockets. Uh, with me right now to discuss more on this is Congressman Jason Chaffetz, Fox News contributor, former Oversight Committee chairperson and author of The Puppeteers. Uh, Congressman, welcome back. But first, David Weiss is going behind closed doors in a transcribed interview with the Oversight Committee, Judiciary Committee, what kind of questions would you ask him? Oh, my gosh, this is going to be a good one. So the, the format is is really conducive to getting deep into it. Republicans get to go for an hour straight, then the Democrats go an hour straight, and they will toggle back and forth for that. They can go four, six, eight, ten hours. Uh, questions to ask David Weiss, what did he know? When did he know it? Who were the people that he was interacting with? What did the attorney general know? What did the attorney general not know? What direction was he given? What sort of documents are there? What you really want to do is fill out the so-called Christmas tree uh, and the labyrinth of who is communicating with who. You can't just ignore it and say, oh, I'm not going to tell you who I sent emails to or who I interacted with. You can't just ignore those questions. That allows the committee to then go deeper and interview more people. But for him, do you think he's going to play a coy or point to battle a Republican if he's evidently pride and has some explanation for why this investigation took five and a half years? Or do you think he's guy's going to show up like a lawyer and try to say as little as possible? 
because there's nothing that would rationalize a five and a year, half a year investigation where the oversight committee, the judiciary committee, gets more than he ever got. Well, we're going to find out what kind of guts he has. He is a political beast. He is a political animal. So, um, but again, I think when you when you're on the receiving end of questions for what will likely be four to eight hours, at some point you kind of break a little bit and you you just kind of spill what's really happening. That's what you hope happens. Well, we'll see. Um, so we're going to find out why this investigation took us so long, and asked him directly. What the whistleblowers have brought up, that you said your hands were tied. Uh, You said that you couldn't pursue anything. They said you couldn't pursue anything related to the dad. And that's the whole thing. It's not how much crack Hunter was doing. It's what were they up to? What was the product they were selling? Why weren't weren't the suspicious activity reports followed up on? Why did it not concern you? Why didn't you follow to the end of this? What else were you doing? Did you need a better staff? What was your interaction with Merrick Garland like? And how do you not tell the truth on that? Exactly. All, all All that specificity and who was involved and engaged in the direction of what he could and could not do. Because he's tried to have it both ways. I mean, he did issue public letters to to uh, uh, Chairman uh, uh, Jim Jordan and try to have it both ways, and being able to say, "Well, I have total control." Oh, well, I haven't. Oh, these U.S. attorneys denied my ability to prosecute in other jurisdictions. And then the big question, you know, why did he let the statute of limitations expire on key key things? Right. Uh, so we'll see where that goes. So yesterday. Uh, the polls came out and it showed that Donald Trump is winning in every battleground state except Wisconsin within within two points. And this is a Siena poll. You know, it's not usually kind to to uh, to Republicans. And because of that, David Axelrod went from a tweet to actually putting his uh, words behind his his the printed words behind his printed words. He actually went on television and said the same thing. Cut 21. There's just a lot of concern about the age issue. And uh, and that is something that I think he needs to uh, ponder. Just do a check and say, is this the right thing uh, to do? Time is fleeting here, and this is probably the last moment uh, for him to do that check. And it's 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 probably good if he does. <laughs> I I love that. Just do a check. That just cracks me up. <laughs> So the thing is, you don't think that he needs introspection? He needs advice from David Axelrod, whether to ask himself if he really wants to run? Hey, Jill, I was just thinking, pass this all. <laughs> do you think I'm too old to run? Because I just saw David Axelrod on CNN, and he thinks I am. Do you want me to? Let me think about that a second. Quiet everybody down. Here's more from David Axelrod. Cut 22. We had lousy polling numbers at this time in our campaign in 2011 when I was working for Barack Obama. But the two things that are different are that Obama was 50 and not 81. And uh, and uh, we didn't have Donald Trump on the other side. So is 50, not 81. I'm not sure if he thinks Trump is a good thing or bad thing on the other side, more challenging than Mitt Romney or not. But that's true. Obama could talk his way out of it. But we did, uh, Jason is they vilified Mitt Romney. They made him the worst person on the planet. Maybe he was a, he was a, uh, an entitled white guy who was looking to destroy businesses and didn't like black people or dogs. And at the end of it, Mitt Romney was on defense the whole time. Well, and, and, So and, that they're going to try to do that with this anti-MAGA rally today. Yeah, well, look, um, Mitt Romney wouldn't fight back. I mean, he, 
He had a, a way about him that was he had limited his ability to fight back. Donald Trump is always perpetually in fight mode. So totally different scenario. And Joe Biden's not getting younger. It's not as if, hey, he just needs to speak more, get out more. He, he get out there, he'll draw a crowd. Barack Obama could show up anywhere and he'd get a big crowd. Who's going to show up to a rally for, for Joe Biden? I mean, everybody's, it's just not going to happen. The fundamental problem for the Democrats is their policies are failing. Their safety, I think, is the key issue. Safety in your wallet, safety at home, safety on the border, safety overseas, safety when you go to, you know, try to go shopping. All of those things are upside down for the Democrats. So I don't care how much more cowbell you throw at it, more Joe Biden, more Bidenomics. The economy's failing. Nobody feels safe. That's the bottom line for the Democrats and why I think they're going to struggle. All right. So uh, you know who else thinks they're going to struggle? Uh, Senator Fetterman. This guy came out, and I got to give him credit, in a Bill Maher-type <laughs> fashion. He called out Gavin Newsom, cut 24. Right now, there are two, there are two additional Democrats running for, excuse me, running for president right now. One, one is a congressman from Minnesota. The other one is the governor of California. They're both running for president, but only one had the guts to announce it. Wow. And, I mean, we look at this, we speculate, we're having fun with it. He's debating DeSantis in a few weeks, just got back from China. He was over in Israel, uh, and we know he did a big interview with Sean Hannity. Senator Fetterman is saying we were all thinking. Your thoughts, Jason? Oh, Senator Fetterman is is right over the target. He's running. He Come on, Gavin Newsom wakes up every morning, looks in the mirror, and says, Good morning, Mr. President. I mean, he he wants this so bad. And he's trying to fi- find that fine line where, he, oh, I'm not running. I'm trying to help Joe Biden. Baloney. The guy is trying to prep, build his network. He picked a senator from Maryland because he knew that that would help him in the networking if he runs for president. He didn't pick somebody from California. He picked a Maryland resident to be the senator from California because of her network. So Gavin Newsom standing in California has hit an all-time low. <laughs> 49% disapprove of his performance as governor. This according to UC Berkeley's Institute of Governmental Studies. The survey also showed that Newsom's popularity has tumbled in the last year as he continues to try to be a national figure. Newsom's approval rating it was 44% in last October's poll, an 11-point slide from February of the, previous, of the same year, this year. 55% of voters approved of his performance at one point, and now his, his performance has steadily declined. And if you look at it, they're now looking at another $14 billion deficit. Taxes only go up. Homelessness and crime is out of control. And he's not addressing it. San Francisco is basically unhabitable. Businesses are leaving. He's trying to unionize fast. He did unionize fast food workers and put a minimum for them. So it's upping the price in working class areas. I mean, that's not your retirement plan as fast food job unless you're in management. So the stuff he's doing isn't strong. It's not accepted. And if he, and if he thought that he, just because he looks the part, he was going to get a thumbs up, he's not. Isn't that a problem when you're not rated high in your own state? Yeah. I mean, I, look, I, I don't understand what he thinks the justification for her become, becoming governor. Nobody, no state, no country wants to be like California. And yet that's going to be the case, and he's not at home. He's always constantly on the road. Not a good look for a governor. Today, what are you looking for? I mean, people are talking about the Mississippi governor's race. They're also talking about the uh, the gubernatorial race in uh, in Kentucky. 
where you have Cameron against Bashir. Bashir, a moderate, so-called moderate Democrat, or that's how he ran, doesn't remember Joe Biden's name. And then you have Cameron saying, this is crazy. We're, we're a Republican state. Put me in charge. A young black man who has been very impressive and mentored by Mitch McConnell. It's too close to call. What does your gut tell you? I think Kentucky is a bit of a bellwether because you you have a candidate, you you, you have a current governor who's actually you know a uh, more of a moderate, but can Republicans get out the vote? Democrats, I think, are far ex- exceed the the Republicans in their ability to get out the vote. Um, even though the Republicans, I think, have the issues on their side, so can Republicans actually get out the vote? That's the big test coming up tonight, and you know why I think uh, Kentucky is a is a bit of a bellwether. And you like Virginia? And the Republicans are pointing to the fact that Youngkin said, "Get out and vote early," and he's trying to get that stigma away from Republican voters that if you vote early, they're going to lose your vote. That Trump never trusted it, and it didn't help him. He wins election day, but not elections. And the same thing. So Yunkin getting that vote early, if he gets results in that state legislature, what does it mean? That that I mean, that is such a sea change with such a population that is centered towards the Democrats, um, big government. Again, same thing. Can they get out the vote? He's a very attractive candidate. He has a solid message. But can he district by district, you know, legislative seat by legislative seat actually get out the vote? And that'll be key. Uh, thanks so much, Jason Chaffetz. Appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, Garrett Gentry, uh, Ventry at the bottom of the hour. We'll go inside the GOP. But when we come back, more in this war, uh, more in some of uh, what's taking place on Election Day, as well as uh, a quick look at the, at the breaking up of the Democratic Party. It's happening in real time. Back in a moment. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. We agree that we have to provide humanitarian assistance. We're doing it uh, with uh, and coordinating it with our American friends and with President Biden. We'll do whatever we can. We don't want to give Hamas the opportunity to endanger our soldiers. We saw that until we started the ground action, there was no pressure on them to release hostages. What we see is the minute we started the ground action, there is pressure. And that's it. And they're cutting Gaza in half right now. They've made tremendous progress. 450 airstrikes yesterday. Over 50 rockets were found at a compound used for youth activities. Looks like a Boy Scout camp. Uh, so Israel doing ground operations, as you mentioned. The IDF uh, also located exposed evidence of Hamas's use of civilian compounds underneath major buildings like hospitals. Uh, during activity by a team of soldiers on the 460 Brigade, they located terrorist infrastructure and cleared the area. Their rocket launch pits were found by soldiers in the mosque, and they were destroyed, but they're doing smart things. They're recording all of it. For those people who really don't think that October 7th happened and really don't think that these Hamas terrorists set up in civilian areas and used civilians as human shields, you got video. Meanwhile, some more good news. The IDF eliminated Wal Asefa. He's the commander of Hamas's uh, key battalion. Uh, officials say that Asefa was responsible for sending terrorists into Israel on October 7th. He reportedly planned additional attacks after the events of that day, which coincided with the Jewish holiday, as you know. Asefa aided the dispatch of thousands of terrorists 
to assault, abduct, and murder Israeli civilians. That according to IDF officials. The military says its forces had split Gaza in two after a heavy night of pounding, and they struck a ton of targets. So Benjamin Netanyahu feeling secure enough to speak out on ABC yesterday in terms of aid. They're getting it. 476 trucks carrying humanitarian aid had entered Gaza through the Rafah crossing. That number, the number of trucks uh, arriving in Gaza have been steadily increased over the past uh, few days in large parts of the special envoy Satterfield. Meanwhile, for the Biden administration, $320 million was just transferred to Israel as we mark the one month since the war began. What they want is the $14 billion over there, and the Democrats, the Republicans in the House said, fine, but the Republicans in the Senate and, excuse me, the Democrats in the Senate say, no, I want $110 billion and include border funding, Ukraine funding, Taiwan funding. And the border funding is a, is a boondoggle. The border funding is going to make more tents, going to give it to more states to handle more illegals. They're not going to change the asylum rules. Like has been brought up for people who say Republicans don't have a plan. They came up with a plan. And the Democrats said it's a non-starter. Making these people stay in Mexico should be the starter. But balance so far in private, the U.S. is uh, uh, the U.S. is working with uh, Republicans to get some funding. I know Speaker Johnson wants to get funding to Ukraine. They all want funding to the border. The question is, it's got to be earmarked to spend on the right things. I don't want to do the laundry of illegal immigrants anymore. Uh, it's destroying states. And if you go bail out the states with federal money, that's more tax dollars that's not used for us, more interest, higher interest, more deficit. Brian Kilmeade Show. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Yeah, it's not an outlier. We've seen similar polls like this that show in that hypothetical matchup, which doesn't seem all that hypothetical anymore of Biden uh, versus Trump. It, it shows that he can actually win and is leading in these battleground states. That is uh, the Siena New York Times poll and the CBS poll came out in individual issues. I think Trump is just trouncing uh, Joe Biden, and it's not because he's got better 30-second ads. They're just comparing the four years, and Biden's three years, and Obama's eight years. And it's bringing flashbacks to everything we did not like about Barack Obama and splitting the difference and not seeing much difference between the way Hamas acts and Israel acts. I think it's a little bit of a problem. And now Joe Biden finds himself on, the, on a different side from the squad and from Obama, uh, and we'll see where this goes. That is what the poll said. Let's see what Garrett Ventry says. He's the founder and president of GRV Strategies, LLC, former senior advisor to Senator Chuck Grassley. Garrett, your thoughts about that poll and why so many people are alarmed by it on the left? Hey, Brian. Yeah, thanks for having me. And great show. Really, uh, really appreciate it here. No, you're absolutely right here. I mean, it is a very simple comparison here between Donald Trump's four years in office and Joe Biden's almost three years in office here in power, and it's very simple. You're looking at the borders out of control. The economy's in shambles. Inflation is higher than it was four years ago. Mortgage rates are at 8 percent. The world looks dangerous. We had no new wars under President Trump. Under President Biden, Russia has invaded Ukraine. You have seen uh, 
the Taliban topple Afghanistan. You're seeing Israel with this devastating attack by Hamas, the terrorist attack there. So the world looks less safe. People feel uh, the pain at the pump, whether it's gas prices, they see their 401k. So things just aren't going well here. And if you're on the left here, they're making up all these excuses. Their number one talking point is right now we're one year out. We're one year out. The issue is with one year out, there's no, Brian, you know this, there's no uh, signs that the economy is improving. It actually could get worse. That's number one. Number two, Joe Biden's age, which is a major concern for voters, not just Republican voters, but independent and Democrat voters, some of whom don't want him to run again, a lot of them actually, that's not going to get better either here. So uh, the alarm bell should be going off on the, the Democrat Party right now with Joe Biden because he's a weak nominee and he's losing ground to President Trump in five of these six key battleground states that will determine the White House come November 2024. So Siena poll is out within the poll. It shows Trump, who got 8 percent of the black vote in 2020, has now 22 percent. How devastating. It's still low, but how devastating is that to the black uh, to the Democratic cause? Absolutely. That and the Hispanic vote, he's up about 10 percent there as well. It's a, it's a devastating situation here because you're talking about this is the coalition that Joe Biden used to win the White House last time here. And he only won by about you know 80,000 votes, 100,000 votes in about four states. So that is a significant number. We've actually never seen a modern-day Republican hit that type of number with the African-American community. So clearly, uh, Joe Biden's policies on the economy – uh, his weaponization of the DOJ, which is perceived by Republicans and a lot of Americans against Donald Trump here with the four indictments, those type of things are chipping away massively here with the Hispanic vote and with the African-American vote. And they're seeing Donald Trump as a better option for their financial well-being and their family. Well, Nikki Haley also does extremely well against Joe Biden and, and Ron DeSantis does. Uh, Tim Scott and also on that stage, Vivek Ramaswamy and Governor Christie, that rounds out the top five. But in terms of people being concerned, before I talk about the debate, I want to talk about Richard Blumenthal. He said, I am concerned. I was concerned before the numbers. I'm concerned by the inexplicable credibility that Donald Trump seems to have despite all the indictments, the lies, the incredible wrongdoing. Now, he's taking uh, aim at uh, Blumenthal in particular because he made up all his war stories and he never lets him forget it. Uh, but, But no one can figure out. That, that Donald Trump is so viable and stronger than he was in 2020, despite 91 charges and four separate indictments and a civil trial. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think most voters here are seeing this as political. It's baked in, right? They've done one after another here, and we can obviously walk through that process here. But you got to remember, Jack Smith wasn't appointed as special prosecutor here, or special counsel, excuse me, from the Department of Justice until three days after Donald Trump announced his reelection bid, they had two years to charge him, two years to bring uh, a special counsel. They waited till he was running for president. Right now, they're trying to put him in jail, essentially, so he's not on the campaign trail. It is in a courtroom. So you have that aspect of, it. and then you just have the economy being in shambles. Here, you have the border out of control and all the foreign policy issues we discussed with Israel, with Ukraine. Um, and then Afghanistan, obviously, devastatingly two years ago. So, again, this is going to be very tough for Joe Biden going into 2024 here. So let me ask you, uh, are you playing this out? If Biden continues to struggle on the stump, in, uh, refusing to do interviews, things just stay the same. He's unable, unlike Barack Obama, George Bush, or Bill Clinton, when they were trailing, they just went, went to the stump. And one thing they do is they try to vilify the other guy. They're, Don't worry about me. Look how bad the other guy is. And they're going to go after Trump. They started, they went at it again today. They're going against the dangers of the MAGA movement. So having said that, how do you get rid of Joe Biden? Like, is there a scenario where he says, you know, I, I do want to spend my last years uh, on the beach. I don't want to do this. How does it work? 
Do you know the mechanics of getting on the ballot for whoever emerges? Yeah, the issue right now is you're talking about to qualify for the ballot here in some of the early states. A lot of these deadlines are either passed or are passing soon. So there's that issue. And then, as you know, the Republican delegate process versus the Democratic delegate process is just different. It is essentially uh, there's these super delegates and all these other situations here that benefit the incumbent, which is Joe Biden here. So he's got the party apparatus, the delegate process the DNC behind him and the Democrat machine and donor. So it's going to be very tough for him to be removed, you know, removed as their nominee here. I think he's going to be their nominee. I think there's a lot of folks that prefer on the Democrat side. You've seen poll after poll and Fox News polling, for example, 50 percent of Democrats don't want him to run again. Concerns about his age. So, again, I think they, that's wishful thinking. They would like to see that happen, but I don't think that that's going to happen and it's going to end up being Trump versus Biden. If he, if, uh, for example, let's say he does have a health failure. Let's say he does fall. And, you know, he's in a wheelchair and he goes, listen, this is impossible. I can't win. And, you know, you see David Axelrod getting up and saying that, uh, saying what he said. It matters, I think. So having said that, but do you know, is it possible for a a candidate who has maybe, you know, in the future, a heart attack and says, you know, it's too dangerous for me to be president? I mean, do you have to go through the primary process or does the party make up their own rules? Yeah, I mean, eventually what you could do is you could see a situation, depending how far it gets, Brian, into the process, right? It's different if it happens tomorrow versus in five months, right? But if it happens, you know, months down the road here, you do have the DNC nominating process. You'd have probably the delegates make a decision. And I think, you know, a lot of folks would probably, unfortunately, the apparatus would probably unite, if you're a Democrat, unfortunately, would unite around Kamala Harris, which, in my opinion, is a bigger disaster than Joe Biden. She's the one person who's made him look relatively competent. So here's uh, here's what uh, John Fetterman said on the stump. Cut 24. Right now, there are two there are two additional Democrats running for president. Excuse me, running for president right now. One one is a congressman from Minnesota. The other one is the governor of California. <laughs> They're both running for president, but only one had the guts to announce it. So he's doing his Bill Maher impression, taking shots at his own side and seeing what we're seeing, calling out Gavin Newsom. Newsom's numbers aren't great in California, but do you, as a Republican uh, operative, do you have to have a game plan against him, against Pritzker, against Whitmer? Yeah, I think you have to be thinking if that's a potential here. Again, I think there's some Democrat operatives deep down in most Democrats, really, that would prefer someone else. Other than Joe Biden, simply if you look at the poll numbers, like you said, you look at his age, you look at the economy, and you look at the matchup versus Donald Trump. So I think, you know, Republicans would be prepared to that. I think if it's Gavin Newsom, it's a pretty easy argument. You don't want to make America California. Look at the homeless crisis there, taxes, gas prices, and people are flooding out of that state. Gavin Newsom is essentially the number one real estate agent for the state of Florida at this point in time, or Arizona, other states that just have a better economic outlook. So I think you have to be prepared there. But at the end of the day, I do really think it will end up being Joe Biden. It's unfortunate for Democrats. But I think that puts Republicans in a very strong position because of how weak he is as a president. What are you looking for today? Uh, Youngkin feels as though this is his audition, tried really hard to flip the uh, the House and the Senate. Do you think he will? I think so. I think Glenn Youngkin has done a really good job of uh, a model of showing how you can flip a blue state uh, really red here. You've got a good opportunity for them to control both uh, chambers and the legislature there in Virginia, which would allow Youngkin to usher through a lot of his agenda. But I think he's ran a very smart campaign when he won, uh, you know, about two years ago, um, historically there. And so you saw him 
focused on parental bill of rights, the gas tax. He focused on a lot of local issues that mattered to Virginia, and then some of the national issues with critical race theory uh, obviously played a big role in that as well, and Joe Biden's unpopularity. But I do think he's done a great job building a state campaign apparatus here, and he's put them in a really strong position to win. And then obviously, will you know, if he has a good night tonight. You'll start probably seeing, obviously, there's been speculation for 2024, which he said he's not going to get in. It's too late in the game at this point anyway. Uh, but I think it will fuel speculation for potentially a future run in 2028 if he's able to have a dominant performance tonight with his political apparatus. I, I don't think there's any way he's not running in 2028. And I, I think agree. 24 is done unless Trump decides to bow out or can't, or can't run. Uh, what, is Kim, what is Kim Reynolds saying this mean? Cut 26. He is one of the most effective leaders that I have ever seen. This is a man who, when a hurricane struck his state, he cut through red tape and built a bridge in a matter of days. Now, listen, I'm a governor that's dealt with disasters. That is incredible. Not only can he be strategic and have a plan together, he knows how to execute it. And at a time when the world is spinning out of control, that is what we should be looking for in a president. So she gave him the endorsement. I guess she's trying to save. He knows he's all in. Iowa or boss for Governor DeSantis. He basically lives there. He's down, I think, 41 to 16, tied with Nikki Haley. Uh, Garrett, tell me what you think. How does, does he, can he close the gap with Kim Reynolds by his side? Well, I would say Kim Reynolds is a really very good governor. She's popular uh, in Iowa with Republicans. She has a, which is more, more importantly, she has a really strong political apparatus. And that's going to matter with the Iowa caucus here. So it's definitely a good get for Ron DeSantis. There's no doubt there. Uh, his campaign has obviously been lacking over the last few months in polling, you know, bleeding campaign cash with donors. And you're seeing, again, Nikki Haley creep up on him in Iowa and then obviously in New Hampshire and South Carolina as well. So there's really a strong battle for second here. I think being down 27 points, President Trump has a strong, very strong showing in Iowa. And his numbers there are very dominant in terms of his voters being excited for him, them already being locked into caucus for him, which is extremely important in Iowa versus the other states. And so I think, listen, this gives him probably a little bit of a boost here, but there was a poll that the Trump campaign did. I think it gives them about a four-point boost at minimum with Reynolds. That's what their polling says, at least. We'll see how it plays out. This certainly gotcha. is going to be a key endorsement for him trying to make up ground, but I think it's going to be really tough to catch President Trump right now with the dominant lead he has. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, and we'll see after the debate. And What do you think? Uh, Garrett Ventry, thanks so much. Founder and President of GRV Strategies, you, former advisor, Senator uh, Chuck Grassley. <laughs> Inside the GOP. Garrett, thanks. Meanwhile, I'm going to be going up on outnumbered uh, at the top of the hour. Uh, today is the day Teddy and Booker T came out. You can get the, watch the whole show on Fox Nation, other way, uh, which you're watching me on now if you're watching video. Uh, it's probably the best, I think, hour special we ever did, and I've done 57 of them. But it's about two American icons who forge a path to racial equality. I think it's a great inspirational story, all true. How they work together, unlikely uh, partners. Unlikely success stories should be inspirational, motivational. Go to BrianKilme.com, especially if you're going to be in New Jersey. So I'll see you there. BrianKilme.com. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm going to be outnumbered at the top of the hour. So before we go, I'd like to find out if there's indeed more to know. More to know. 
All right, now these are the stories I couldn't get to because this war is raging, and I want to focus on that as well as the election. But now this. New tech has a spooky ability to detect future heart attacks. This is according to an AI, and uh, this is according to a new study. AI is able to identify people at more than 90% risk of sudden death. Quote, when the data is fulsome and accurate and has a large enough sample size, AI will be able to identify patterns and correlations that humans might struggle to see, especially when they require two or more factors or have seemingly contrarian conclusion. That according to Phil Siegel, the founder and Center for Advanced Preparedness and the Threat Response Simulation. Now, that's a good thing about AI. Next. A climate activist takes hammers to a famous painting in London. Uh, this according, this uh, is the painting. It's called uh, Just Stop Oil was the name of the group. They attacked a Diego Velasquez 17th century painting called Rokeby Venus, and they hit it with safety hammers. The pair of protesters identified as, uh, as Harrison Donnelly and Hanan Donnelly took the hammers to the glass before shouting, at museum patrons claims that millions will die due to new oil and gas leases. These people just are horrible individuals, confused and deluded. Next, Starbucks unionized. And guess what? They announced Monday that it'll be raising wages for its workers 3% starting next year. I feel bad for them. You ever walk in and they have a new drink? It's so complicated to make. Everyone's in a massive rush. I think it's too burdensome on a coffee place. They have way too many options. So I think they should get more than a 3% raise because, you know what, it's not cheap to get a coffee. They put together these concoctions. They cost a million dollars. Starting with competitive pay, Starbucks provides U.S. hourly retail partners an average wage of $17.50. A barista wage can be 15 to $24 with benefits at $27 per hour. You know why the thing, the owner of this uh, Starbucks said that his parents never had health insurance, so he was giving everybody there health insurance. That's kind of cool. Next, parents welcome a 14-pound baby, the largest on record since 2010. Congratulations, Sonny Ayers. The fifth child of Chance and Brittany Ayers was born, I don't know if I need to know this, cesarean, thankfully. Uh, Quote, it was dumbfounding, the proud dad said. This happened, of course, in Cambridge, Ontario. So it happened in Canada. Well, here's the other thing, too. They had uh, another, uh, a previous one of their babies was over 13 pounds. Well, so they got some big kids. I mean, I'm thinking too bad they're stuck playing Canadian football. Three downs, bigger end zones. See side, if we can import them. Line. Yeah. See if we can get them here. Can you see if you make that happen? Yes, Pete? we're going to try to sign them at the earliest. Forget about signing now. them out of high school. Signing them out of the womb. Yes. Right. Or right out of the uterus. Next. Hands off. 49% say they can't stand friends who take food off their plate. A survey of 2,000 people in the U.K. revealed that 49% of the people get particularly irked when someone takes food off their plate. Of course it's burdensome. Since when is that even a thing? Uh, When dining out, 53% experience food envy, wishing they had ordered that someone else is ordering. Among those reluctant to share, 37% justify their stance by stating that they order what they like and expect to enjoy it by themselves. 16% also resent potentially paying more resent paying more for receiving less in return. I notice that. You go to these fancy restaurants, they give you, like, nothing on these huge plates, and they don't even mind. Like, they don't even put on parsley or try to dress up the plate or give you a fancy plate to make it seem big. They don't do that. Do you notice that? Yeah, there's there's nothing. And you know what? I agree. Hands off my food. If I want to, I will offer it to you. Because I have never in my life asked a friend or anybody at a table... Hey, can I try that? Let them <laughs> ah, offer it to me. Right. And by the way, I always say no. Even if I want it, I say no. 
because it makes it seem like I've had a bad choice. I don't want people to know how I feel. Uh, next, a new study from Entertainment and Technology Research from uh, Hub found that instead of watching TV, Gen Z prefers to consume non-premium content and play video games. Unlike their parents, TV is only one of many screen-related activities that people under under 25 engage in. Gen Z reportedly spends 22% on games, 21, 2 point, uh, 21% online, 6, 17% on watching TV for those over 35. Uh, and by the way, watching TV is the most popular screen-based entertainment activity at 43%. Can I just say personally, I would like everyone to put down the phones and watch old-fashioned television with a tube. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.